Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 35, The Downward Spiral to Durham. Early Saxon burial practices are often seen extending from the first East Anglian settlements all across the eastern half of England by the 7th century. Saxon burial urns are an obvious cultural continuation of the practices from the German north where these tribes originate. In fact, they have been able to find specifically these urns used all the way back into the 3rd century in northern Germany. As the Germanic tribes moved out from their original base, they would either occupy or dominate local British land. Likely what happened is, is as they were brought over either as federate or as settlers coming over to settle in those specific areas for whatever reasons, they would end up slowly starting to culturally dominate the landscape. And we can actually show by DNA, by burial practices, and by the cultural equivalencies of these things, how they moved and where they moved from and to during a period of time. And what we see is slowly but surely over the 5th century, they moved from East Anglia, from those areas around there, into Kent, in towards the Thames Valley. No doubt in these areas, enclaves of British survived, particularly around Lincoln and Verlanium, or St. Albans, where the surrounding areas are devoid of early Germanic cemeteries, and there must have been other large tracts of countryside where the descendants of rural Romano-British populations continued to live, and where they continued to have a lifestyle, including farming and, and settling and living and working. Yet amongst all this, the Germans continued to move forward, whether by plague, which we know during the 6th century, the plague of Justinian actually is rumored to have come into Britain, or through lack of resources, as we've said before, the inability of the British to keep up with the changing dynamics of not having money system, not having the old trading routes, and the Roman systems just generally breaking down, there would be an inability to pay for and fund certain things, including a standard military, as would have been the case in Roman Britain before that. These kind of things meant that it gave opportunities for the Germans to move forward. And I am going to call them Germans because, of course, I could say the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes, and the Frisians, and I could say that over and over and over again. But just for simplicity's sake, for now, anyway, we're going to say Germans, at least for the 5th and 6th century. After that, we'll probably migrate to the obvious name Saxon. But for the moment, let's just choose that as our general location in the way we're describing them. The archaeological records show that by the peace Gildas talked about, most of England was in the hands of these Germans. Likely only Yorkshire and the West Midlands and the areas around Gloucester and West did they temporarily halt the advance. The British collapse was complete in the East. Latin Brythonic, as a language of the East, was superseded by the new language, one which we would then call Old English. The other key component of all of this is that we see merging and migration in of various settlements of not just Germanic burial practices, but also of Germanic jewelry and Germanic clothing. And, and as well, we see mergers of families between British, Romano-British families and these German settlers. And thus, likely these settlers started to grow together with their local relations, local British fellows, and probably intermingled, and through their cultural dominance in the area, generally merged with them. The numbers are argued about quite often as to how many Saxon-German 
invaders there probably were. And it's a hard one to kind of come about and, and argue with coherently. But mostly because numbers in, the, in older times when they would actually estimate things, they usually got the numbers way off. Uh, there was a tendency to inflate numbers quite often. But there is a perception of a certain amount. And there is, unfortunately, within that, a wide variance of what you believe is the actual numbers. Part of the problem is, is what happened? Because, as we said before, the original belief based on the sources was of an invasion of a just a grand push by these Germanic tribes into Britain, either killing or wiping out local British tribes, taking over those areas or local British kings, and dominating and completely ethnically cleansing them, to use a modern term. We know now that's not true, and that likely that's overblown rhetoric by certain people in the source material, and that likely what often happened is that we had a change of cultural belief. Now, one perspective, especially at the early beginnings of this century, that the DNA showed, for example, that there wasn't a merger of a large amount of Saxon blood into the British milieu, but rather that there was a small elite band of Germans who effectively took over and influenced the culture. And that's understandable. It would be kind of similar to what happened in India, where you have the invasion by Britain and control of India, mostly through elite white British descendants, but most of the actual population being still native Indian. The problem where that sort of falls apart is that the fact that we have evidence now more and more that the DNA proves that that's not the way it worked out. And we're going to talk about the numbers in depth in a little bit. So to get back to where we were... The Britons of the West, South, and North were, as Gildas points out, dashed on the tide of the Germans. Lincoln, a key cog in the Roman invasion under Claudius, remains British, as did St. Albans, as we mentioned earlier. In fact, one could argue that the border of German control, if archaeology is to be respected, would likely have been the Foss Way, the old Roman road, which served first as the border for the Roman invasion of 43 AD. It actually ran from Lincoln north diagonally to Exeter, which is in the far southwest. But at, that's where it kind of breaks down a little bit. Whereas the Foss Way is pretty much the border for cultural change and burial practices up until you get down towards London area, where it actually diverts more towards Southampton than it does to Exeter. And this would show where the British put up a more stringent resistance to the German influence, if you want to call it that. And it looks at that point, that's where the cutoff was, at least into the 6th century. These areas, the burial practices are in the majority. The west of that line, there is none, which serves as a pretty stark reminder that there was a division in the of a large proportion of people. If, as contended a couple of weeks ago, that the conflict from the Germanic British turned into a civil war in the British camp for nearly half a century, there would have been little to stop the progress of the Saxons, and likely a lot of British speakers may have been won over to the side simply because they offered stability. That's often the case with these kind of situations. If you can offer somebody peace, and you can offer them a job, if you can offer them a place to live without threat of rape, plunder, destruction, people have a tendency to prefer peace to freedom. And that may have been the case for a lot of British. Gildas, in fact, mentions this idea when he talks about the idea that those people who were either killed, 
fled, ran away to Brittany or other places on the continent, or allowed themselves to be, as he called, enslaved to the Saxons. The concept here that he's proposing that there were people that actually joined the other side. Now, of course, Gildas is using very inflammatory language. He's using stuff to kind of make his point. And so, of course, these people are, are in his point of view, foolish and traitors. They are very much the kind of people that if you're on a side politically or religiously or any number of different ways you want to look at it, if somebody crosses over to the other side for whatever their justifiable reason might be, you look at them as something lesser. You're a traitor. And of course, to him, a hundred years later, it's reprehensible. And it does make one wonder if, if the conflict that we talked about turning into a civil war is actually a civil war because there are some of the British who are like, you know what? We're done with you people. And we're going to put our lot in with the people who are giving us things that will actually make sense. Or maybe, and here's the blunt truth, maybe the Saxon German forces weren't the bad guys here. Maybe it looked like they were the better side to be on for these Romano-British. And maybe they thought, hey, why am I continuing to fight this? These guys are a better, are offering me a better life. So why would I stick with you? And if you want to put that into, I wouldn't say modern terms, but in, in terms that maybe we understand better, imagine that those that when America uh, divided over the Revolutionary War, there was a large contingent who did not want to go with the American colonies that preferred to stay British, so much so that they actually moved to Canada en masse and back to Britain. And in fact, some places like New York City were not actually positive to the revolutionary cause through much of the war. And in a lot of cases, these people didn't go back to America. They didn't actually want to stay with them. They wanted the security and the peace that the British brought them and possibly the wealth, possibly the political advantage, who knows? So there's a large number of reasons why they would have done it. And in some cases, maybe it was just a case that the land was cheaper. So you have a population with a situation where you have a destabilized government or rulers who are considered to be tyrannical or considered to be in some way problematic. I mean, Gildas certainly does not cover the grandkids of of the original people fighting against the saxons is somehow great he spends an awful lot of time telling you how terrible they are so if they're terrible and we'll get into this a little bit more down the road because i do want to get into a discussion about these kings that gildas dislikes so much but if that's the case then you can see why people would want to get away from them and if somebody else is offering you what appears to be a better life or at least a more stable life sometimes stability is worth it we, we can look in modern history where at times during the Great Depression, for example, when we have the rise of Nazi Germany, part of the reason why they're able to rise so easily is because they offer stability. They offer a chance to have a life which isn't food or death, you know, rent or death. You got the ability to have your food, have your rent, live your life and not have to decide where the money is going to go. Where are you going to find things? You know, how are you going to dig your life out of the gutter that it's been tossed into because of various economic and political reasons. So you can see that, I mean, we always look at history and we're kind of funny, I think, from a modern perspective because we don't give people credit for being people. You know, the brains in the person in the 6th century and the 5th century is no different than the brain you have. Their understanding of life and their technology and their basic 
livability is different than ours. There's no doubt about that. Certainly, aren't we're healthier, we're generally richer, we're generally better fed, better clothed, better housed. But the reality of it is they're still the same kind of people. So if you offer them stability, if you offer them a peaceful existence where they're not going to be overly taxed or overly mistreated, people will go that way. And we're going to talk about a lot of this a lot because this will happen occasionally. And so the idea of having a stable, secure, safe environment is attractive. And a lot of times it leads to a lot of bad people taking over because that's the last bastion of hope you have. And so you throw your lot in with people who aren't to be trusted because they're better than what you thought you had. You know, the communists were apparently better than the czar, who was apparently better than the chaos before that. And we know now, not necessarily the case, but at the time, it seemed like a good idea at the time. You know, we... we do things often thinking we're going to make them better and actually end up making them worse. So did the Romano-British move in and become a part of their new Germanic rulers? Yes. I think categorically we can point that out. Do I see this as being a Norman invasion type situation where you have basically an elite class that comes in, takes over, and replaces the previous elite class? I don't see it that way. I think what we do have is a much larger migration than what they're giving credit for. So how about we break down some of the numbers, talk a bit about that, shall we? So Professor Barry Cunliffe in uh, Britain Begins, I think, does probably the best explanation for some of this. And I think his discussion of numbers is, is an interesting one. So rather than me try and, and tell you, I'm just going to quote him. So this is what he says. Attempts to use archaeological and skeletal data to assess immigration have suggested that in the Anglo-Saxon cemeteries of the south and east of England, the immigrant-native ratio is between 1 to 3 and 1 to 5, while in areas of later expansion, the expansion west and north, it falls to 1 in 10. If we assume that the populations of Britain have fallen to, say, 2 million by the mid-5th century, then the total number of immigrants could have been as many as 250,000, but is likely to have been significantly less, between 100 to 200,000. Such figures are, of course, beset by uncertainties and at best hint only at an order of magnitude. What is interesting is that both of the genetic and archaeological approaches point to a significant level of immigration to southeast England during the 5th century in the order between 10 to 20 percent. So in other words, yeah, it wasn't a migration of just elites, which would have been 10 to 15,000. You don't need that many elites. In fact, the more elites you have, the more problematic that is. Because if there's too many elites, there's not enough people feeding the elites. So obviously this is a much higher migration than that. And a hundred to 200,000 people in that time period is a massive population shift. It explains exactly why modern DNA is arguing that one third of England is actually Germanic origin. It makes perfect sense. Of course... If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? 
Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. Intermixed with all this, and, and again, uh, Professor Cunliffe, I think, points this out quite well, we have... A problem where the mixture of later people coming in and earlier people coming in confuse the DNA issue. And so when people say, oh, well, obviously it's this or it's obviously that, the problem with the DNA issue is that we have movements of people across the channel at different times that influence things and skew things. Like if the, if the argument is that the Jutes and the Angles are from what we now call Denmark, which is the case, that's one of the arguments, and the Saxons are from Germany. Well, here's a problem. There were Germanic tribes moving into Britain at different points, be they uh, Belgic tribes that moved in and migrated in the Iron Age or possibly in the Bronze Age, if it was even maybe some of the Mesolithic Age people, it could also be, or Neolithic Age people, it could also be that these are people who have moved in during the Roman period, either through migration to avoid you know, problems along the Germanic border, along the Rhine. It could also be that they moved in just before the the collapse of Roman Britain because they were, as mentioned before, federati, mercenaries or troops brought in from groups because when you would bring in the troops from different organizations or different groups, as we mentioned before, you get kind of the whole tribe coming in. So you get a lot of people, not just a couple. The other thing is, too, for the most part, we think those groups, if they stayed, merged in. 
The reason why we think these groups are later date is because of the effect that they have on the population. It shows that likely things didn't change dramatically until about the early 5th century, right around the time when Rome has proposed to have left, when the story that Gildas is telling about a need to bring in the Saxons to help defend against the Picts and the Irish makes sense. The other major item with all of this is that, again, going back to the Angles and the Jutes, if they're Danish, we have a, another wrinkle in this DNA situation in the fact that there are Vikings who invade England in that same area just a few hundred years later. So thus, their DNA is mixed in, and it becomes very difficult to tell what is a Dane from the 5th century or a Dane from the 9th century. And quite often, that can muddle things as well. So you have a number of factors which are creating this DNA issue, and it's not as cut and dried as it constantly gets made out, in some cases by archaeologists and in some cases by the actual media who are trying to portray a certain story. So we can't just accept everything at face value any more than we can accept that there is or isn't Celts, that there is or isn't an Arthur, as there is or isn't Anglo-Saxons, for that matter. The reality of it is we don't know enough and we can't evaluate well enough. We have to work from the sources we have, work with the archaeology we have, and to be fair to the sources, they're not wrong. Gildas is not wrong in what he said. In fact, we can point to where he said it was this and Dang, if it doesn't kind of look like that if you look at the archaeological map, especially if you take away later interpretations. If we get away from Bede and Nennius especially, we start to see that this isn't a mass slaughter, but it's a migration. In some cases, commissioned by the government of the day or by the council of the day, and that this migration was first natural, then became, as pressure started to mount, a much more militant tone to it. I mean, anytime you have a situation where there's a population increasing and using more and more resources in the area, it leads to confrontation. That's why we have wars often is that one side or the other wants the other's resources because maybe they need to feed their people more. Maybe they want a specific resource. Uh, we can point to oil as an option or coal in the past, or maybe the gold or tin or copper of the bronze and, and later ages. All of these things are reasons beyond the, you know, the normal political slash uh, religious reasons for people to invade your land and to try and defeat you and conversely the other way around. So these concepts and these ideas create some of the problem because we forget that Gildas is closer to it, thus has probably a slightly better understanding of what's going on. And in some ways, we get distracted by the later sources and their fantastic stories of wars that seem to rage with millions of people on both sides destroying everybody. And the reality of it is that's not the case. And in fact, one could argue that that is an overestimation of the situation. And so I think that's one thing we have to keep in mind is we have to be careful whenever we talk about sources and source material and we have to evaluate based on what we have. And I've constantly said this. So, to get back to the story, as we mentioned earlier, there's evidence to suggest that one-third of the population of England is from German ancestry. If we look at that, as I said, it makes perfect sense. It, it breeds on itself an obviousness about it, because you, I don't think you have the kind of culture... I mean, think about... Okay, so think about 
the Normans. The Normans came into England as the so-called heirs to the to the crown of England. They then took over. The elites came in, speaking French, by the way, who actually originally had spoke a Viking language, who then invaded what was then uh, northern France and were called Norsemen or Normans, uh, who then turned around and invaded England, speaking French. So, yeah, there's an example of cultural backshift. They come into uh, England. For hundreds of years, they dominate culturally. But at the same time, the dominated culture bounces back at them. And eventually, they actually take on, instead of being, you know, merging England and English people into a Franco-England, it actually flips on its head. And the Francophone speakers, the, those that spoke French, in fact, are emerged into the English speakers, which were larger proportions of the population. And the English speakers didn't lose their language. They weren't merged out in the way that they had happened here. So thus, I would argue, the population had to be way bigger than what was contended previously, because simply moving the elite in wouldn't have created this problem. The other thing is, is that the expansion of the German language and German burials into the 570s, into the Thames Valley, proved that there was a desire to continue to move and a continual push to try and advance territory. As the old British provinces and kingdoms, initially of like the Aeseni, um, were dominated and then would fall, they kept moving. And you don't do that if you've got a small group. You're getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and maybe you're getting all these British people moving in with you because, geez, you know, Hans over there has a much better life than I do. So rather than live in this dog crap of a situation, I'm going to go where it works for me, where it's better for me, where I have a life I can live, where I can raise my family without the threat of death, starvation, destruction, you know, ruin, but for other, you know, between civil wars and, and pestilence and famine and all of these things that would come about in this era and people being people. So these groups grow, the population grows, it expands, it expands, it expands. The Germanic speakers become bigger and bigger and bigger, and they push further and further and further. And they start to conflict with the richer areas of England. You know, the southeast was a pretty rich neighborhood, but once you get into the west country, we're talking, this is where a lot of the money in Rome was in Britain. This is where the big farms, the big, massive villas were based out of and this was prosperous this was the region that basically was the breadbasket of rome and was the place where a lot of the money was made a lot of the materials and manufacturing was done to ship ore so all of these things meant that the west country was an important place very important so by that point the conflict is now getting serious we're now getting into a situation where you know, Gildas has passed away. The wars that he said had come to peace are continuing. And the Saxons now are moving in on our Romano-British in the western part of England and the west in general and are putting pressure on those groups. Yorkshire 
gets pressure from these groups. The north, you know, the southern part of Scotland, which is still Romano-British, is getting pressure from these groups. Somerset, Gloucester, all of these areas are under pressure and under siege. And in fact, we can tell that in Somerset, where there was a number of hill forts, they get restocked, rearmed. In a way, they become the bulwark against this. They become the people who are protecting themselves from this disaster. And so there, this is an important point. And the other key point is, up until now, our Romano-British are still Romano-British. They still control a large proportion of the countryside. So thus, they're able to communicate and able to tear, trade, able to move troops back and forth. They still have access to most of the Roman roads. They're still in control to a certain extent, but they're losing, and they're fighting a losing battle. And so... According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and other people, around 577 AD, at a place called Durham in Gloucestershire, we have a battle which takes place. And it is a major battle. It must have been, in that time period, a huge battle. Now, like I said, numbers are not what we think of when we think of these kind of things. By a major battle, we might be talking two or 3,000 on both sides maybe even as low as a few hundred. It's hard to be sure because the populations were never that big. Military troops were probably not as big as we kind of think of in this day and age of modern armies with millions of troops. So into this corner of Western Britain arrives this battlefront of Saxons versus the Britons. And they beat the Britons and in fact crush the Britons enough that they lose a number of kings and they lose a massive amount of land. And for the first time to this point, the British are starting to get cut off. And now, all of a sudden, they lost Gloucestershire. Losing Gloucester, which included Cirencester, Gloucester, and Bath, amongst other places, and the prosperous Cotswold region, means that they lost a massive plus for Britain. And without it, they lose a lot of their trading power because this, as I said, was one of the richer areas of Roman Britain. And with it, we start to get what are now our modern boundaries for that. At this point, Somerset is still a part of what is considered to be the Southwest Welsh. And now we're calling them Welsh because now we are actually in Welsh times because now the Britons are no longer Britons anymore. They're slowly being cornered and cut off and they're becoming other kinds of people. They start to become the Cymri, or the Companions, rather than the Britons, who are part of Roman Britain. And the Roman side of it starts to lose its shape. The language that has been the language of the last few hundred years disappears from Britain as a language, a living language. Latin is gone. And Brythonic, which had been the ancient language, returns, or at least becomes the dominant language, and it in fact merges into what we now call Welsh, Cornish, and what would have been the lower part of Scotland before Gaelic, because of course Gaelic was a Pictic Irish language which, didn't, which wasn't influenced by Latin, which Brythonic is. So all of this sort of happens in a very quick period of time, relatively. Within a hundred years, by 677, Nothing will look like this anymore. There will be no more British. There will be Welsh. There will be the South Welsh of Demonia and places like that. There will be 
the North Welsh, who will be near the borders of the Hadrian's Wall and Antonine Wall, and they'll be fighting a number of different groups who are all fighting them, be it the Picts or, as it turns out, the major forces of the Saxons, which are now establishing themselves. And within, by 590, the Welsh are effectively cut off. There is, at the Battle of Catrick in North Yorkshire, there is a destruction of the last major English-British kingdom. And with its destruction ends the ability of the British to push the Saxons out. If they ever had had a chance to do it, it's gone after this point. These battles, aside from the fact that obviously the Anglo-Saxons have a point in their chronicle, are going to be arguing about how wonderful they are, and we will see times where they lose, and amazingly the chronicle's like, mm, da, 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 I don't know what you're talking about. You know, they don't mention, for example, Mount Baden. Uh, these things come about, and the reason why we can say that obviously they happened in the fact that there must have been some reason why these people got cut off, and the boundaries changed, and the kingdoms changed, and even if there's little name leftovers like Elmet and uh, Carlisle and places like that, which are leftover remembrances of these old British names and towns and communities and kingdoms, they're gone by very shortly after this. Carlisle, of course, not, not included in that comment, but, but the ideas of these populations. And, and when I say gone, I don't mean that the, the population's gone. Likely the political foundations are gone and the population is absorbed into the current Saxon population. And thus this tendency that when, like I said earlier, Professor Cunworth talks about the concept that only one in 10 of the, of the Yorkshiremen and above are German of German ancestry. Well, in part, that's why, because effectively whole societies now start to join in and start to become a part of that culture. So we have a totally different sort of set of circumstances and situation. So if we were to put it bluntly, this is the end of any sort of British survival point as a combined nation. They're gone. And the kingdoms that arise out of this will be nothing like the old Roman British systems. They will have very little in common with the Roman British systems and what we also see is an extinction of the Latin language as the main language of Britain. We start to see this on inscriptions that are suddenly turning into a Brythonic inscriptions and proto-Brythonic inscriptions. There is still a tendency to continue with the language of, or in the literacy, but not in the literacy of Latin. And so that's how it works. And because of that, this is basically what we have. We have a merger of cultures. We have an, ex an extinction of political culture, but probably a merger of Saxon and British into one people, which will then grow into the kingdoms that the Saxons will talk about and the heptarchy that will come out of that. In other words, the kingdoms that basically will control Saxon England for the rest of until the Viking invasions in the 800s. What we have here is an end of what the old system was, and we have the definitive statement of this is when Wales becomes Wales. Even though they're still broken up into multiple kingdoms, and we're going to get into more of that, 
The reality of it is what we know of as Welsh begins at this point. This is truly when there is a Welsh area and a Saxon area or an Angland area, if you want to put it that way. And the differences are stark and the way of life is stark and the opinions of each other are stark. And this is where people like Bede and Nennius will write bitter diatribes against each other or where the ideas and concepts that you would ever unite as a people would be thrown away in a debate and battle against one another. But we will see that that's not as clear cut as I'm saying right now. We'll actually see points where the Welsh and the English fight against other English and the Welsh and the English fight against other Welsh. So this will happen enough that it'll get a little confusing, a little muttered. But understand that at this point is when predominantly what we now call England is speaking what we would consider to be a version of English. And the rest of the, the old Romano-British areas are now speaking what amounts to a version of Brythonic Welsh. And that change is stark. And we'll talk more in depth about another group that are going to come into this argument. And we've talked a little bit about them. But we're going to get into next week about the Irish and how their influence on Welsh history is dramatic, important, and how likely they founded one of the most important nations in the Welsh historical annals in the idea and shape of a place called Gwynedd. Until next time, everyone, thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments or any sort of things you want to tell me or show me, you can reach me at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at welshhistorypod. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash welshhistorypodcast. And I would encourage you to go check us out at distractionsmedia.com and check out my other podcast, Fate of Heroes, which is at fateofheroes.podbean.com. And it can also be found on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and all the other places that you find your podcasts at. So I would definitely encourage you to check that out. I think it's a lot of fun, and I quite enjoy it. And we are coming to the end of our second season, on our second year, you might say. And so it's a good time to kind of jump on board and kind of see what it's about. So anyway, until next time, everyone, we'll talk to you later. Have a good day. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.